Okay, uh, hello everyone. My name is Kevin Fernando. I'm a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and also Education Director for GP Notebook Education. So I'm fortunate to have 10 minutes of Partha Carr's time today. Partha is Specialty Advisor Diabetes uh, with NHS England. And as many of you will be aware in primary care already, we had some major data published just a couple of days ago, type 1 and type 2 diabetes and COVID-related mortality in England, a whole population study. So, part of this, this data has made, for, made a lot of noise. Thank you very much for your hard work, hard work contributing towards this. And of course, the other authors, very uh, rich data set, very unique worldwide. And as with all good research, this raises more questions than answers, uh, doesn't it? Uh, and I suppose from my, my point of view, and certainly what colleagues have asked me, the, the question has cropped up most is, uh, Will the results of this data uh, change current shielding advice for, for diabetes? Yeah, and thanks, Kevin. Uh, first of all, thanks very much for the opportunity. Um, and I think, um, so to look at the data neutrally, I think you're absolutely right. That's the first thing that people are asking. You know, people are on the ground. Okay, so this is great. What does it do? And I think uh, so far, just to recap, the advice has tried to be as consistent as possible that if you've got diabetes, you should stay at home unless it's essential. Uh, the, all the data set has now been given to the chief medical officer and his team because they are the ones who make the decision, national decisions about shielding. So if you look at present categories, for example, if you've got a hematological malignancy, you should be shielded. The question we have is that based on what we have found, uh, should there be specific groups in there who should be shielded or not? Um, and because I think the data, uh, see what you feel, but my personal view is I think it certainly shows that not everybody should be shielded with diabetes because it doesn't lend itself to that but certain categories. So we await the chief medical officer's reply uh, to us, and uh, that will probably help us nationally and across all places as to who should be shielded. And for perhaps uh, people who are not so familiar with the top-line results, diabetes does appear to significantly increase the, the risk of adverse COVID-19 outcomes, mortality, and it appears that perhaps type 1, uh, people living with type 1 diabetes are at greater risk than type 2. Yeah, so I think the top line, head, top line headlines, as you said, is that is diabetes an independent risk factor for mortality if you're affected with COVID-19? The answer is yes. Yes. So I think, for, so first of all, what I always say is that before we get alarm bells ringing, that's actually the same thing when you pick up flu or pneumonia or anything else. So that's a very important message to bear in mind. Um, I think it's also important to bear in mind. So when people say that type 1 diabetes seems to have 3.5 times more risk than a person without diabetes, type 2 has got twice. If you look back in history, there's a paper done by Kerry et al, which says that that's pretty much, there's three times the risk with type 1 diabetes if you have pneumonia. So this is not hugely different, but what it also does show is the importance of age. The most predominant factor in the whole data set has been age. So even though type 1 diabetes has got a higher risk, if you're below the age of 40, it is quite low. If you're below the age of 20, there's been no recorded deaths at all in the data set done. So I think there is a message there, which is across the board, but also the very important caveat that age is a big factor, your glucose control is a factor, your weight, where you live is a factor, deprivation, et cetera, and of course your ethnicity. So not as clear as binary as yes or no, so to speak. And that segues quite nicely into my next question. You know, a lot of variables there, you've given us a lot of this lends itself to a, a, a nice risk calculator for us to use in primary care. As you're probably aware, in primary care, we're well-versed at using risk calculators such as Q-Risk 3, Q-Diabetes. 
Are there any plans afoot to perhaps use this very comprehensive data set to, to, to try and help those difficult discussions, to be honest, with, with people living with diabetes and their perceived risk of, from COVID-19? Yeah, and I think this is exactly the advice we're looking for from the, um, you know, the chief medical officers team, because you're absolutely right. The data set is rich enough for us to construct something. And I think it will help us with a bit of a discussion. What I think we could do with a bit of guidance is what, what, what exactly is the cut, so to speak, where you say this risk is too much. Yes. This risk is something you should not be working or whatever be the case. So I agree. I think there is a lot of discussion about the, the data is so rich, you could probably come up with the risk calculator. But as I said, we are waiting for guidance from that point of view before we make that decision. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much. And then similarly, you, you, I'm sure you've seen our RCGP BMA document on workload prioritization for us working in primary care. The, the, I, mean, I won't go through obviously all the groups, but for, particularly for people living with diabetes, they outline three or four different groups uh, within those living with uh, diabetes that we should continue chronic disease management even during and of course beyond the pandemic. They were people yep. with HB1Cs over 75, recent DKA, people have become disengaged with their, yes. their care. So how would, you, how would this data set perhaps influence that, uh, that, that guidance? Should we expand those groups then? Because, you know, as again you're aware, we're seeing a lot more now non-COVID related contacts. Yeah. Yeah. We're clearly still a good bit away from business as usual, but we are starting, uh, you know, to, to start chronic, uh, more routine chronic disease uh, management. So my view is, I think there's a short term and a slightly longer term. I think in the short term, I think the important bit is when COVID-19 is not going anywhere until we have a vaccine or whatever. So we need to bear in mind the risk factors and try and minimize the risk factors we can't, right? So in primary care, we'd say, well, you can't change the age and the ethnicity and where people live, but you can certainly make a dent in their weight and their glucose control. So if you look at, for example, if you take somebody who's type 1 diabetes above the age of 50 with an HbA1c more than 10% or 85 millimoles per mole, your risk is double. Should yes. they be targeted? Absolutely, 100%, no question about it. Um, so I think that's the short-term one. And I think the longer term, I think this is the time for us to relook and go, like, are we doing a disservice by trying to give everybody the same care? Should we be focusing a lot on the younger adults so we can reap the benefit of it going forward, as we all know? So I think there's a bit of that right now what we need to do. And I think this data set lends itself to, look, if you're a certain BME ethnicity, men, uh, and as well as your HBOs is above X or Y, then I think they should be targeted to sort of see what we can offer to improve their glucose control or indeed their weight. Thanks. Um, my, my next question was around uh, the data and what it tells us about uh, people who, are, who live in deprived areas or from a certain mm. ethnic background. So unfortunately, yeah. these groups of individuals also appear at significantly increased risk of mortality. So the inverse care law was coined originally in 1971 by Julia Tudor Hart, who sadly died just a year or so ago. But mm -hmm. it doesn't appear we're in any different situation now in 2020. No, and I think this is where it, it slightly jars if you work in the NHS so much, because the NHS does pride itself on equality of access, etc. And quite rightly too. But if you look at data, and you talk about Julian Tudor, you obviously also Michael Marmer's paper, which talks about the yeah, same thing. And I think there's a lot of frustration that in spite of all the talk and all the rhetoric, nothing has changed from that point of view. Yeah. You know, it, 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 where you live does matter. Uh, the postcode lottery is alive and true. And I think, as I always say, there are non-modifiable factors like your age, there are modifiable factors like your um, blood pressure. But 
this is like semi-modifiable, which is a lot of societal responsibility as to what we can offer. So I think there is a, there is a big message here, not just in our data. If you look at Ben Goldacre's data, open safety yes. across the world, it says exactly the same story. And I think we as a society need to do better uh, rather than just saying we need, we're going to give people access. You know, we need to have that flexibility to see what we can do. There's no question. This is something we, have, we must tackle rather than keeping on talking about. So do you think uh, this COVID-19 pandemic will drive a change uh, once we come out of the pandemic going forward and re readdressing these inequalities? I think it's important we don't lose focus of it because lots of people are focusing on different things. And I can understand why, because people, I wouldn't say it's an agenda, but because it's the, you know, the most passionate they believe in, for example, BME, you and I will straight away go like, right, I would like that. But I think it, we, we also don't, we forget that the BME population, a lot of it is also tied in with the socioeconomic deprivation side. And I think that's quite important. We don't lose sight. So I think as a whole, if I had to target it, uh, then societal deprivation probably would, if we targeted it, I think there's a belief that the BME side will also improve with it hand in hand. Okay. And I think that's where this comes through. So yes, hopefully, fingers crossed, yes, it does. So just a couple more points. I'm conscious of your time uh, today. So just as some of the curiosities I saw in the data. So it was interesting to see that duration of type 2 diabetes didn't seem to significantly impact mortality. So this seemed a bit paradoxical, didn't it? Because certainly all the complications we're well aware of in type 2 diabetes, the cardiovascular disease, mm -hmm. disease are a function generally of duration of type 2 diabetes, aren't they? Uh, yeah. What's going on here? I know you can only speculate. Uh, yeah, no, I, and I think that surprised us. I mean, there's been fair, I mean, I'll give you one more example of the finding. I'll come back to your question. Smoking. I mean, that surprised okay, a lot yes. of people as to what's going on. So, it looked like, it looked um, like a protective almost, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and that instinctively doesn't quite make sense. So you try to understand. So going back to your question, one of the theories I have is because we have included renal dysfunction in it, whether that's actually negated the year out by cancelling each other and i don't know so i think what would be quite interesting to do going forward that if we did take out that that bit off from the picture rather than trying to standardize that would that make would that make duration come back into play and if if i slightly switch back to the type one population why they're a higher risk instinctively that makes a bit more sense because the average death is 72 so you're talking about maybe they've had glucotoxicity for 50 years which is very different from glucotoxicity of 10 years. So instinctively doesn't quite feel in the right place, but I think more data is to be done on that, I suspect. Good, good, thanks. And then the, the other sort of uh, curiosity, well, I suppose we've seen this pattern before, the U-shape we saw with BMI. Um, yeah. Particularly the lower BMIs. Uh, I was thinking that, is this perhaps a surrogate for frailty, um, but lower BMIs and increased mortality, or what were your thoughts there? <laughs> I think that's a very important message there because quite rightly, uh, obesity is being picked up, weight management is being picked up, but what is being lost in that rhetoric is that suddenly people are saying, all you need to do is lose weight. And I think we need to be careful about the message we give out there, apart from the stigma and all that, is to say that actually, if you look at the data, the sweet spot, so to speak, seems to be between 25 and 29, right? And 22, it's, so you're roughly... And definitely, if you're less than 20, your risk is about the same as more than 40, which could be due to, as you say, frailty, nutritional status on board when you're in ITU. So I think what the message is for this or for glucose control, you've got a similar message that if it's less than 48, you're at risk, actually. Yes. So I suspect it's that, it's that you know, we as, you know, as clinicians, we see, keep on saying the same thing, is that 
too much of anything is too bad. You know, you don't want it to be too high, but too low. You need to be in that sort of nice optimal space. And I think this is what this is also confirming a lot. Well, I, I'm sure you appreciate it. it's difficult to hit that sweet spot, isn't it? Very. Uh, our patients living with diabetes and for mm. us. As, uh, as yes. And you, and you mentioned HbA1c, so definitely we saw a U-shape there as well, didn't we? More tightly controlled HbA1c, uh, yeah. an increase in mortality. And we've seen, uh, uh, seen that sort of U-shape in you know, big studies such as big a court, haven't we? Yeah. yeah. Great. Great, thanks. So really to finish off, uh, as you can imagine, you know, whilst this data has been very welcomed and uh, there's a lot we can discuss, it's already generated a lot of noise. Understandably, it's caused a lot of concern amongst my, my colleagues in primary care and of course, ultimately my patients living with diabetes. So if you had so two messages, one for my uh, patients living with type 1 diabetes and one for my patients living with type 2 diabetes, you know, to, to put this in perspective and to reassure them where possible, what, what, would, they, what would they be? I think the first overarching message is that um, with or without diabetes, the majority of people with COVID-19 will survive and do well. I think that's important to bear in mind, right? What we are seeing is a rise in mortality and it's the tightness of the time period which is scaring everybody and obviously media, et cetera, does not help. And if I've got somebody with type 1 diabetes, I would say to them, think of the modifiable factors. Your age is important. There is no hiding away from it. If you're below a certain age, your risk is very, very low. Okay, so uh, as I said, if you're a parent of somebody with a child, you can be much more reassured by what the data is showing. If you're however 50 or nearly 60 years old, then you can't change your age, but you certainly can try and improve your glucose control. So I would say talk to your clinician, look at what technology can be there, we'll look at what self-management platforms you can access. Do what you can to try and get on top of it. That would be my message for somebody with type 1. Okay. For type 2 diabetes, again, very similar in the sense that you can't change your age or ethnicity but you certainly can make a difference with your weight and your glucose control. And again, think of what can be changed. Think of what your clinician can offer. Engage with them. Don't be worried. Don't be scared. The NHS is here to look for you. You can't change, as I said, some things which will happen. The risk is very low. All you can do is try and minimize your risk as best as you can. And I think that's the advice I would give is, and, and you do the usual things of social distancing, you know, hand hygiene, et cetera, and uh, till the vaccine, is, everything arrives. I mean, certainly from my perspective, I've seen this as an opportunity within a crisis as well uh, to, to re-engage perhaps with some of my patients. Uh, and, and certainly from, from my patient's point of view, I've had a, a, you know, a lot approached me keen to, to maybe uh, look a bit more closely at the diabetes management. So, uh, you know, whilst we're working in very challenging times, you know, I, I do think there's some positives that are coming out of this. In For this sure. No question about it. It gives us an opportunity to have the discussion again. And I think people's views will change, and etc., which is a good thing overall for our population as well. Great. So thanks so much for, for your time, Partha. I know you spend all your time looking out for everyone, living with diabetes, and also all those HCPs in primary care. So I hope you're holding up okay yourself. I know you've got a, a lot Thank on you. your plate, but we very much appreciate uh, uh, everything you do. So thanks no, for your time. You Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers.